0: Welcome everyone and, um, and good morning. Welcome to, uh, welcome to Palace Green and uh, welcome to Durham Book Festival. Um, welcome to the Big Read event this morning. The Big Read is an initiative that was set up by, uh, by New Writing North who programmed Durham Book Festival to celebrate a love of reading. So over the last couple of months, uh, 3,000 copies of Northern Lights have been distributed uh, to schools, to the university, to libraries, uh, to the prison, uh, through County Hall, through the coffee shop here. What we really want to do is to get County Durham reading uh, Northern Lights and to get everybody uh, talking about it and celebrating this uh, this book. So um, what we thought we would do this morning is just try and bring our various range of academic expertises um, to thinking about Northern Lights. Uh, my name is Simon James I'm a professor of uh, Victorian literature uh, in the English department here where I'm currently uh, head uh, so it gives me great pleasure to introduce my colleague Dr Victoria Flood Victoria is a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow um, in, in Durham she is uh, a medieval specialist um, who is, is literate in a bewildering and terrifying number of languages <laughs> including if memory serves medieval French Is that uh, medieval Welsh, Welsh. Welsh, sorry that was a slip of, a slip of the tongue and uh, uh, and she is, uh, she is here to Durham to work on the fairy hunt in medieval literature. Um, Dr Gillian Boughton is a fellow of St John's College here in Durham. She is, like me, uh, a 19th century specialist above all, but she works very much on the interplay between literature uh, and theology, an area where she both teaches and researches, and she is an expert uh, in particular on the work of the hugely influential and popular um, Victorian novelist Mrs Humphrey Ward. Um, Professor Stephen Taylor is an expert in uh, politics and religion in the 17th and the 18th centuries. He has a particular expertise in the, um, in the Church of England, and he is currently head of the history Department. So I wonder, can we please welcome my university colleagues here this <laughs> morning?. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So I wanted to start uh, more broadly by just thinking about um, about fantastic literature, uh, which I think is often seen as a, a subset or a sub-genre of what's held to be uh, you know, the very best or you know, you know, canonical English literature. I'm taking a certain measure of preaching to the choir this morning that I think we're all here. We all think that fantastic, fantastic literature is great. So I just wanted to think beginning about... Um, uh, what is it that makes a fantastic literature, uh, you know, literature with a, with, you know, with a supernatural or counterintuitive element, um, so special? What does it, what does it bring to us that other kinds of, of writing that, that doesn't? Now, I think perhaps you're uh, steeped for the longest in the, in the history of this, Victoria. I wonder if you might like to think about that.
1: Right. Well, for me, the reason why Northern Lights and his Dark Materials is such an exciting book, and um, isn't because its its canonicity is in any way questionable. See, for me, this kind of literature stands at the very beginning of of English literature. It has this really long relationship. Um, I feel like I'm about to launch into an undergraduate seminar, so I'll resist. (laughs) Um, But the material I work on is broadly understood as medieval romance. Uh, Most of it is a kind of questing narrative, where a young knight moves through an otherworldly landscape, um, encounters various supernatural creatures, fights various battles, and comes of age and comes into some kind of new knowledge. And this is a really long tradition of writing um, across European languages. And what's so fascinating for me about something like Northern Lights, but also C.S. Lewis's works, Tolkien, is just how they're tapping into this long, rich tradition of Western European writing, um, of this quest narrative. And one of the reasons why, um, and I'll be talking a little bit about my childhood experiences of reading this as much as my, my academic ones, but one of the reasons why Northern Lights is so fascinating for me is how Philip Pullman subverts these kind of expectations of the genre, um, how he subverts what he's doing with. The quest, um, and one of the most important things for me is that his questing knight is is a girl, um, mm. is Lyra.
0: Great, thank you. Um, Gillian, you, um, your, your own field comes to uh, this, you know, this sort of writing a, a bit later on. Why do you think uh, fantastic literature exerts the hold over us now as, as readers that it, that it does?
2: Well, going back to being a child, I, in fact, I had five years when there was no medication which helped something, and I was in bed from the ages of three to eight, oh, more or less. And it made me into what I, whatever it is that I am today, namely <laughs> <laughs> a voracious reader huh partly to escape from the bed, you know. And what, what this fantasy literature and other literature, fairy stories and so on, gave me at that time as a child was a way out, and it had a grip on me so that exciting experiences which happened later were not as exciting as reading, and they probably still aren't.
0: Mm.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, second point, in uh, like Pullman, I taught in the city of Oxford in a secondary school for a while. And I found that among the children who were having interesting problems like turning up to school without uniform and so on, if you could get them interested in this sort of story, you could translate what you were saying to them into sort of fantasy language and get them back on course. Mm. Um, but the final thing, I think, is, on a serious note, romanticism clearly brought to the fore aspects of human experience which were far more you know, subtle, spiritual, extended out of the human body. And in a sense, it's romanticism which brings the fact that a child quest, like an orphan in Dickens, we are questing through the unknown existentially, aren't we? As readers and as individuals... Maybe that's an analogy.
0: I think that's a really imp- a really important part of the appeal, isn't it? That it, you know that it, it draws readers in. I I find this as an as an 1890s specialist in one of my own courses too. That I promise students to say, if you if you come and take my course, we'll do Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde and Dracula in the in the second in the first term. And now I've got you, I'll get you reading Henry James and Rudyard Kipling <laughs> and the things that I'm researching in the in the second. But whatever yeah. it takes. But one of my colleagues who teaches on the Romantic period here says that. Um, I was marking an essay on, on Philip Pullman last year, and I said, I don't think we were teaching Philip Pullman. He said, well, no, it was an essay on Blake, but really it was an essay about Philip Pullman, and I think that's <laughs> fine. I think whatever it takes. Um, now, Stephen, I'm going to slightly turn the crowd against you by revealing that when, when we discussed this, you said that you're, you're not a fan of fantastic writing in general, but you are a fan of, of Philip Pullman in particular. So I think, what is it about, about Philip Pullman that, uh, that, that makes him worthy of one's time and, and attention, do you think? Yeah. The way you made me reflect on that um, (laughs) led to
3: a certain reappraisal. I mean, I hadn't really thought about Pullman as fantastic literature. And unlike, and since I'm the odd person out here in that I don't have a particular, I don't have an academic interest in literature per se. Um, And really, I've come to this as a fan of the of the book. I didn't initially think of it as fantastic literature. It has occurred to me that what draws me, I think, to this are some things that actually draw me to writers like Margaret Atwood and Angela Carter. Mm -hmm. Because I was going to say that the the first and foremost thing that drew me to this is what I think is an absolutely incredible story. And that, I think, is also what draws me to history. It's the story, it's the narrative um, that is is absolutely fascinating. And this, for me, is actually just a brilliant story. Beyond that, I think the reason why something like this appeals to me in a way that Tolkien or C.S. Lewis never have is I think what this shares with Angela Carter and Margaret Atwood is the subversiveness. Mm. Um, This is a challenging book in just about every sort of way, intellectually and morally. And, and I think if we put those two together, you know, a brilliant story with something that actually forces one to think, rather than reinforcing, I think C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, they're both in a the sense they're deeply conservative writers in many ways, um, and that reinforces a sense of, of, of social norms, yeah. moral expectations. Pullman challenges he makes us think, and, and that I think is exciting as well.
0: Yes I mean I, on that at least I think I, I absolutely agree. <laughs> I think that um, there 's a, um, a theorist called Frederick jameson um, who 's written a book on the academic study of science fiction where he says that science fiction is wiser than the world it speaks to, and I think that 's true. I think that while you 're quite right, Gillian, that the fantastic is an escape, but I think from that place that we we escape to. You know, our own world might look different from it. So um, the time traveller might travel to the year 802-701 and might look at the world that he's come from and it looks different from that vantage point. Or in a, a, a book that I'm working on at the moment, uh, H.G. Wells sends two men to the moon and from the moon they reflect on on Earth society. And I think uh, Philip Pullman's world tells us about some of our own world as, as well as about uh, the world that the book um, inhabits. Northern Lights was described as one of the first um, crossover books, as this being uh, you know, a book for teenagers and a book for adults. I think um, at the time, um, in the 90s, as some of you will remember, there were two different covers, a cover that was made to appeal appeal to teenagers, but there was a a different cover so that you could buy it as an adult and feel less embarrassed about it. (laughs) I think 20 years after Northern Lights, I think we we seem less bothered about that too. I think it's just a book and it's a great story, as you say, Mm -hmm. that we can enjoy. But, uh, Victoria, if I could come come back to you too, because... um, You had the advantage of, of having read these books for the first time um, as a teenager and now rereading them as a teenager. As, um, uh, I
1: mean, th- this is what's so interesting for me. So, I, <laughs> I proudly have my 1990s child cover. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> which I've been reading as an adult on trains <laughs> and buses. And, um, obviously, this book is of academic interest to me, but I feel like I have a quite close, or I'm developing quite a close personal relationship to it. Um, so, Northern Lights came out in paperback when I was about 10, so final year of primary school. And obviously it, it was a good story, it spoke to me in various ways. Um, and sometimes a children's book has, has the power of articulating something which maybe as a child you can't. Uh, maybe anxieties about religion or about growing up um, in a way that perhaps you couldn't say directly as a child. But reading it as an adult, I realised just how important this book is as a story about growing up mm. and as a story about how painful the process of growing up can be. And it's this kind of bittersweet thing for me at the moment. So I read this book and I think, well, Lyra is, is 11, still 11, and <laughs> I'm 29, <29." laughs> which is obviously uh, deeply troubling for me in many ways. And <laughs> um, it compares so interestingly to... and I One of the reasons why this was such an important book for me as a child is how it compares to books like C.S. Lewis, which I know um, can come across as quite a prissy book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. (laughs) It's incredibly moral. Um, It's a book in which um, its child characters are incredibly well-dressed and they say things like, gee golly, Edmund, that kind of thing. They didn't really offer the same kind of identification as I feel like a character like Lyra does. This idea of this messy child who isn't particularly moral in that way, who lies, who constantly lies across, across the book, and that's something that we celebrate. It's, to me, it's just such a convincing portrayal of childhood. Mm. Children make up stories, children believe their own stories, and they are messy, and they're disordered, and they have terrible grammar.
0: I think that's true. I think uh, it, mm. you know, Lyra really is a very identifiable child, yes. isn't she, too? That at the same time... Um, I mean, the, 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 the big read uh, edition of, of Northern Lights, the quotation on the back is without this child we shall all die. Mm. So she is an exceptional child, but at the same time she is very unexceptional, mm. that, you know, that she is naughty. I think that mm. she's described by one of the other characters as being a half-wild savage, yes, too, that she's, yeah. not mm. a, she's not a good girl.
1: Yeah,
0: um, yeah. <laughs> um, Gillian, the very notion of, of childhood itself has been said to be a, an invention of the, um, of, of the 19th century, of the romantic and the Victorian periods. Mm. And, and, of course, Philip Pullman, as I'm, I'm delighted to say as a, as a graduate, in our discipline, he holds an English degree. Is you know, is very aware of the, of the kinds of the antecedents. What mm. what do you make of the way that uh, that Lyra is childhood is 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 portrayed and, and changes over the course of this first
2: book? Well, just if I may, two answers. One a tiny little answer in my one of my professional interests, which is literary juvenilia of the Arnold family in the nineteenth century, and there, the children of Doctor Arnold um, and grandchildren and so on were writing away, seeking adult approval, and they were in a sense a bit like possibly their anticipation of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's children, but they were, in the central tradition, Um, they were well taught. What I think, personally, I would argue about Tolkien and um, C.S. Lewis's children is that, insofar as the Hobbits are children, which they're nauticals, is that they are one generation (laughs) ahead. (laughs) In a sense, Pullman is a postmodern writer, whereas C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were clearly writing a generation ahead. So what is that child? I think the fact that the child doesn't know where she's going... To me, is very rea- both realistic and symbolically profound, and his imagination for Lara has absolutely caught both of those. But she's constantly aspiring, like the Arnold children were, to be taken seriously by grown-ups. Mm. So that's all I'd say on that.
0: Lara is not only she's um, you know she's all of those things we've said, but she's also very curious which I think is one of the engines that drives the power of the narrative, that I think a lot of great books dramatise yes. the revelation sure. of, of secrets. Um, I'm, uh, let me be the, the, the first person to let the side down and, and mention uh, the Harry Potter books, which I think a lot of us really enjoy as well too, that every one of those books is structured by the revelation of a secret. I think there is a big secret that's get revealed in the last chapter, and I think, like a lot of people too, I finished each of those at somewhere between one and two o'clock in the morning. Think, of just another couple of chapters, and you keep going, you say you can find out what the, what the secret is. Now, Holman, I think, does that too, that there are things that are revealed over the course of the three books, but he does so in a much more complex and sophisticated way, and I think particularly because of his interest not only in knowledge, but also in power, that, uh, that I think knowledge is very much power in these books, and often power is misused through knowledge being withheld. At, w- at one point, I've noted, Lyra says, you, shouldn't hi- you should have told me before, that's what. You shouldn't hide things like that from people because they feel stupid when they find out, and that's cruel. And that's one of those really affecting moments um, in, in the book, too. So, um, uh, naturally, I should ask um, our historian uh, about, uh, uh, about what you think about the way that power, perhaps the power of the state, works within uh, Pullman's fictional universe.
3: Well, of course, in some ways, what's most interesting about it is it's not the power of the state, it's the power of the church. Of course. <laughs> um, and you're dealing with what I think we could describe as a theocratic state. I think, in a a sense, as a parallel world, that's certainly one of the things that drew me to this book um, initially. There are a whole series of resonances about Lyra's Oxford that recreated very sharply the the world in which I I inhabit professionally, the world of the late 17th and the early 18th centuries. Mm. Um, And you've got a world where, from my perspective... The Reformation must have happened in some form, after all. Calvin is there, John Calvin is there, great Reformation figures, and yet Calvin is there as a Pope. So it's a very interesting (laughs) inversion. And one of the things that highlights are some of the parallels between the medieval Catholic Church and um, the the Calvinist Church that that was set up in in Geneva. Both of them actually were or had to be incredibly theocratic states. They were states in which the church um, and a particular interpretation of the Bible and religious teaching dominated and was used towards the whole of society. And so this is a very interesting thing. Essentially, you've got something that resembles the Catholic Church that liturgically sounds actually quite high church at some points, quite Catholic, but in other ways actually is profoundly Calvinist. Um, A a very tight, almost consistorial discipline um, is imposed by it. And So in some ways, what you've got created is it's, it's a very resonant world um, for for someone like me. Um, all sorts of names come up uh, for clearly using 17th, 18th century references in all sorts of ways. So Father Coram, for instance, mm-hmm. um, you know, straightforwardly brings back memories of Coram's Hospital. Um, and indeed, this sort of charitable impulse that that's that's there. It, it, you know, again, it all fits. And so you can see things sort of coming together um, in a way that that creates an alternative world in which, to put it very crudely, enlightenment didn't happen. And so this world where the enlightenment is, hasn't happened, this world where you have a state that is is theocratic, that is dominated by the church, that is dominated by a very particular view um, of people's salvation, mm. I think is, is both resonant, but also sets up a whole series of intellectual questions that... I say, make even someone like me, who's been who's spent a lifetime thinking about these things, actually think
0: again about a lot of them. Oh, well, that's that, that's <laughs> good to hear too, and that must be fascinating too to, for you to be able to spot the resonances of the of the proper names that would fly over the heads of you know of, of many readers of, of Pullman, my, myself included. Um, now, I mean, Victoria, you um, you compared um, Lyra to a, I think quite rightly, to a to a questing knight uh, yes. when you in yeah. your you know initial thinking about the book. But of course, one of the things that are uh, that are a knight gets at the end of their quest is closer to God, or uh, you know, a, a, a perhaps yes, a remaking yeah. of their of their relationship to uh, to you know to, yeah. to, to God. Would you see Lyra's quest as being a a secular quest, or is it actually stereotyping it too much to use the word secular?
1: Um, that's a really interesting question. I think one of the one of the interesting things that Pullman is doing with with the genre, with this idea of romance, um, is to Normally, normally a romance is actually a deeply ideologically invested text. It's generally quite a conservative way of writing... Um, it generally um, is a form which endorses elite interests. It says that the people who are powerful are powerful because they ought to be. It says that we should listen to our kings and our feudal overlords. Um, it says that we should respect the church. We should respect institutional religion. And we should have a particular moral code, a moral code which most of the time involves being scrupulously truthful and chaste and pure. Mm. And this is something which which Pullman is playing with. And I would say that, yes, maybe maybe he does create a, a secular romance um, and in order to create a secular romance you have to challenge all kinds of dominant ideologies you have to challenge the power of the powerful, you have to challenge institutional religion and I think that's, that's what makes this idea of a, of a late 20th century romance so, so interesting. Mm.
0: Yes, I think that the need for romance never, never quite goes away and yes. while we think of fiction as being the novel, some of the books that I teach such as Treasure Island or King Solomon's Mines or The Lost World, it, might, it makes more sense to me to think of them as being romances rather than as being yes. novels, as being late Victorian um, iterations of that. But I think the idea of finding things out for yourself rather than submitting to established structures of authority yes. does sound yeah. very Philip Pullman-ish. Um, as I'm sure you're all aware, it would be easier to list the number of prizes and awards that Philip Pullman hasn't won for his writing than the ones that he has. But amongst the many honours that Philip Pullman holds is that he holds an honorary degree from Durham University. Uh, When our new chancellor was installed, one of the things you get to do when you're a chancellor is to choose two people that you you would like your new university to have a, a degree from. One of them that he chose was Philip Pullman. And the ceremonies unit asked the English department to find someone to give a speech, and the then head of the the English department asked me, which I was very excited to do, as you can imagine, up until I got to the point where I realised that I was going to give a talk about Pullman's work uh, in our congregation ceremony, which takes place in Durham Cathedral. So I imagined myself standing there in full robe saying, and of course one of the wonderful things about Philip Pullman is that he tells children you don't have to believe any of this stuff about God. And I imagined a, a lightning bolt coming down from the top of the tower and reducing me to a pile of ashes. Of course this is an overly simplistic view of, um, of, of Philip Pullman, but I think perhaps we might reflect on the place that uh, religion uh, plays in um, in in his work, Gillian, and I'm naturally looking to well, you thank here. You. <laughs> yes, just a
2: tiny observation about the fact that it's X, X, he's he's interested in the material form of theology. It appears to be experimental theology, and it is confused maybe in a sort of medieval manner with with science, so that it the. I personally um, don't see it as any threat, whatever, to Christianity, <laughs> because yeah. actually he isn't addressing Christianity; he's addressing the social power of an institution which would probably never have sided with Caesar in the first place. Yeah. So actually, he's <laughs> not—he's <laughs> not doing a Christi- Christianity in that sense at his service. But one thing he is doing, and that is as a person who was born after the Second World War, after the First World War, it isn't Pullman. I mean, the, the, the whole post project is anti-authority because authority has acted so destructively towards so many people. And I think if you, um, you know, T.S. Eliot and the modernists were throwing around with the rocks and the oughts and fragments, as Virginia Woolf put it, of received civilised authoritative texts. And what Pullman's doing is he's remaking some of those texts, and I hope I get a chance to wave Dore's um, Paradise Lost Mm. around later. (laughs) Um, So, yes, he is being quite provocative. I mean, he places... Yurek's uh, armor in the house of the priest in an oratory. Yes, you know, he many times deliberately does that. He makes Lord Asriel tell Lyra a, a misrepresentation of Genesis 1 to 3, whatever. He deliberately changes the text of the authorised version, although Pullman personally loves that text. Um, you know, he does it because he's interested in opening up the possibility of the human soul in a new relationship with whatever um, God, the universe, 42, and everything, actually should turn out to be. Mm. So that's all I would say, I think.
0: Yes, I think I'm, I'm, I'm reminded here of, of, of Tennyson writing about there being more faith in honest doubt than there is in, in subscribing to a particular creed. Um, Victoria, Stephen? My reading would be slightly different. I mean, I, I think I would agree mm. that
3: the first book in particular is a profoundly anti-clerical work. Um... In, in many ways, actually, in that sense, it is an Enlightenment work. Much of what Pullman's attacking is precisely what early Enlightenment figures were attacking. And it's interesting as well, it's sort of the experimental theology, you know, it, it, in the sense that some of the attacks come out of that. That very much, again, mirrors what was going on in the late 17th, early 18th centuries. I think it's clear to me that this is really a reading of the three books together. It's, it's perfectly clear to me that this is not an atheist work. But I think it is raising much more fundamental doubts about questions like sin, um, the relationship between man and a creator. Um, and I think one of the most intriguing things it comes I, I, I think the point comes in the second or the third novel, where there, there is this whole issue of well, the relationship between sin and sex. And therefore, in the novel's terms, between sin and dust. And there's one point at which Lyra um, is talking and says, what if what we're told is wrong and is sinful, is right and is good? Now, that actually, I think, does raise really fundamental questions, at the very least, in a, in a Christian sense. What is being asked there is actually, is what we've been told is sin? In fact, not sin, but virtue. Um, and so I think it's, yeah, you know, I think it's more problematic work um, in terms of relationship to Christianity, mm. though not in terms of relationship if you like to the supernatural and, and to God.
0: Victoria,
1: this is kind of an offshoot of the question about theology, but I'm, I'm interested in the in the text morality, and in, in many respects this is an incredibly ambiguous moral world. But there, re-reading this, there are two things that have become very clear to me about it: that Philip Pullman is deeply invested in what it means to be kind and what it means to be cruel. Mm. And I feel like it, uh, there is a lot that is ambiguous about the text, but these two things, to me, emerge as, as very black and white. And, of course, th- we find these these combining characters. So Lyra's mother, Mrs. Calder, her father, Lord Azrael, These these are characters capable of great cruelty and great kindness, often simultaneously, which is incredibly troubling. Mm. But there is this there is this sense in this book of what it means to be good. And it's not this, you must always tell the truth, you must always brush your hair kind of thing. It's a a sense of to be kind or to be cruel. Um, And it's particularly the the very final um, passages in the book. Lyra can't understand why, why adults or the adults in her life have treated children the way that they have. She says, why did they hate us so much? Mm. Um, which is really interesting and is kind of almost a voice of persecuted people everywhere. But it's so interesting that this is, this is a child saying it. And what we see is perceptions of cruelty and kindness from, from, a, from a child's perspective which is, you know, maybe a measure of a good society. So it's really fascinating that while this is a book which is questioning all kinds of of moral absolutes or kinds of absolutes in terms of knowledge, it is, in many respects, a deeply moral book, which surprised me upon rereading it.
0: Yes, good, very much. Yeah, Stephen. I I I think one of
3: the the things that really fascinates me about the book is the ambiguity Mm. in that sense. Mm. I think one of the the really big messages that came across for me and the big questions is opening up... um, is about whether what Azrael did and Azrael felt was necessary to challenge something that was evil, the power of the church. Mm. While often that led to evil acts, you are still left with a really very... And, of course, ultimately, of course, there was also the self-sacrifice. So there's the obvious moral ambiguity or moral complexity about his position. But also it does raise that really fundamental question, is does challenging evil itself justify
0: evil? And I think that's very much where the, the <laughs> first book leaves us, doesn't it? You know, where it you know, it's, it's poised on that too. Um, uh, forgive me, with my English professor's hat on too, I think thinking about questions around, uh, around free will and sin and original sin, I think that uh, if we're thinking about Philip Pullman as a postmodern writer, that he's doing so very much in foreknowledge of other writers who have thought about these, um, about these issues. So, you know, Blake we've already mentioned, but Pullman gets the title of the His Dark Materials trilogy from Milton. Um, of, of course, and this is you know exactly where Paradise Lost begins, of man's mm. first disobedience and the fruit. That's you know that's absolutely where the, the story of that book, which is you know the story that he takes from that Milton takes from the Book of Genesis, begins. Jillian, um, I wonder if you could comment a little on on what you think Pullman owes to Milton and, and what he what he does with Paradise Lost uh, across these three books.
2: Thank you. I'll just read out to remind everybody you remember. Um, from his quote from Book Two, Paradise Lost, Book Two, at the beginning of the of the novel, he says, "Unless the Almighty, unless the Almighty Maker, them that is to say, them ordain His dark materials to create more worlds." And I think that's interesting because he's talking about the. Um, I was talking essentially about the creativity of God and the negative and positively charged creativity which might create new worlds out of dark materials. But the thing that I love about Pullman and I've been reveling in is his. Um, his I bought actually, I wasn't sure whether there might be some younger people in the audience, and I bought the book I would have saved from a burning building. 40 years ago, which is my complete Milton, which is like a little ale- <laughs> alethiometer there. <laughs> and I also booked Gustav Dore's um, uh, Paradise Lost, which shows some wonderful pictures, in case the young, younger people didn't know, of the ranged um, armies of angels. So You probably can't see this. Right. Armies of angels are plunging down and fighting. So on the one hand, we've got, obviously, epic Homer and Virgil re- leading into... into Milton, and in fact, if you read closely, you can see Pullman imitating, in fact, using Milton's epic similes, his Virgilian similes, particularly when it comes to the tremendous set-piece fight between Jofa and Yorek. Um, and there are some very long, long, wonderful um, Virgilian similes. I've just got one tiny, short, little one here, and the cry came back as a roar like that of the shingle in the world in an ocean-battering storm. Jurek Bernison. Now, that's only one of several Homeric <laughs> and Virgilian similes in that setting. And also, of course, when you reach, you know, um, when you see the, the, the throne which Joppa is sitting on, it's actually a parallel of Satan's throne, um, high in a state of royal... Um, uh, high, high in a royal state which far outshone... The wealth of almost and of eind, Satan, exalted sat. And we've got um this awful, gaudy, bright, gold, rubbishy throne, which which mm. is a to exactly mm. an exact parallel. So he's he's not just using the wide scope of battling of, of angels informing humans what's going on and armies fighting each other, he's actually using literary detail as well, which raises and ennobles, perhaps in, in inspires the reader in, in the sense that it's A literary person always likes the language itself. And as Milton, as Virgil, and as Homer, all all used archaisms and awarenesses of language. So actually Pullman does the same, and I think that's why... For me, ultimately it 's a great book.
0: I think that 's right. I think that just we 've talked mostly about themes and topics so far, but the, the quality of the writing is another thing that, you know, that elevates this, this book too. I'd just um, perhaps like to ask just a brief uh, you know, to ask briefly, what do you think the demons are there in the novel to do? Just a, a short answer as time is already pressing, if that 's all right. but I think uh, it would only be right and appropriate that we should all share what we think our demons would be. <laughs> <laughs> Victoria, would you like to start? <laughs> well, my demon
1: would be what I think the demons are for. Huh. Um, well, I honestly can't quite get clear in my head what a demon is, and if anybody has any suggestions, they'd be much appreciated, because it's not quite a soul, is it? It's not quite the same as a soul, it's something mm. else. It's part of um, this essential quality of, of what, what makes you you, but it's not... It's n- it's nothing as simple or clear cut as as a soul or a kind of self. Um, but I I did a survey of of my friends to see <laughs> what kind <laughs> of what kind of demon I would have. Um, I would love a, a witch's demon, a, a goose, a graceful goose. Uh, but I've been told I'm probably an owl, so <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll stick with that. <laughs> Thank you, Jillian. <laughs> I think it's
2: clear to me that the demon can't conceal its integrity. For example when you're watching somebody who might be, have the ability to be a hypocrite as an adult or as a child, their demon can't, the demon trembles or the demon indicates what things are really going on. So it's a sort of inner self I think, the demon. It's quintessentially who you are, but in an external form. And I would, I'd decide I'd have a hedgehog because it's part oh. of <laughs> 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 Called Peg. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
3: <laughs> Stephen. On the first question, I'm going to be very boring. I mean, I don't know, but what struck me about it um, was that I read this novel out loud to my elder daughter. That was how I first came across it. And when you read it out loud, or the person hearing it when you read it out loud, of course, is not aware about the difference in spelling. And the, the pervasive sense of demon in the modern World Is there something evil? And so what struck me, actually, was just how quickly he is using language to challenge perceptions. Um, now, that, of course, doesn't answer the question what they are, but I think it means they, they have a function in the novel that is maybe slightly different or, or more than, than what they are in terms of their you know, sort of position in, in, in the other world. Me... I would like to think I could cope with a snake. Um, <laughs> it would do me good, because that is my real phobia. Um, given I probably couldn't, um, and it would be interesting actually having to live with one's demon as far away from one as one possibly could,
0: not within view.
3: Um, I think it would have to be a cat.
0: OK, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I think, I think those are all great answers, and I think the demon is, is all of those. But I think the other thing, if I might add, is that they are also demons. I think that one of the things, the way that Pullman works is that you know, he shows us things about our own world, but the world of the first book is a complete and substantial world in and of itself, too. It's not a text, an allegorical text like Animal Farm, where everything translates as a meaning to something else, is that it can be all of those things, but they inhabit you know, their own sense of, you know, of what they are within the world of northern lights, too. And um, having given the matter some substantial thought, I think for me it would be a small but rather chubby bear I'd like to um, thank you all for coming here on a Saturday morning to help celebrate this um, absolutely wonderful book and I'd like to thank uh, Durham Book Festival for giving us the opportunity to to share our thoughts around it. And finally, I wonder if you'd like to join me in um, thanking our panel this morning, Stephen, Gillian, Victoria. Thank you. (laughs)